And thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 262, Once More, Unto the Gap. Last time, General Sakai had started his attack on Hong Kong Island, having forced General Maltby's forces from the new territories. Moreover, the Eastern Brigade, under General Wallace, had been mauled as the Japanese focused their attack on the northeast corner of the island. That, combined with the limited success of the Hong Kong Royal Navy Volunteer Reserve, which tried to stop the ferrying over of additional Japanese troops, meant that the defense of the island was now up to the Western Brigade, under the command of Brigadier John Lawson. But he would face the same problems as Wallace, too few troops in the face of overwhelming odds. The headquarters for the West Brigade was in the valley of Wong Ni Chong, or Yellow Muddy Creek, in the center of the island. And, as strategic locations go, it was a good one, as the valley linked the northern half of the island with the southern half. However, as it was surrounded by heights, Jardine's lookout to the east, Mount Butler even further east, and Mount Parker further east, Mount Nicholson to the west, and others, it was virtually exposed to artillery fire from every direction. Hence, the headquarters would have to be moved. This became doubly so after the Japanese landed to the headquarters northeast on December 18th. A Major Linden, the brigade's major, was put in charge of moving the headquarters to a position just south of Mount Nicholson due south of where it was now, and that would take place the next day. But getting back to the morning of the 18th, when word of the Japanese landings to the northeast reached Brigadier Lawson, he sent out three platoons of Winnipeg Grenadiers to block the enemy, as the headquarters was to be moved, and his defenses were to be reorganized. One platoon was sent to Mount Butler to the east of the headquarters, another to Jardine's lookout to the northeast of the headquarters, and the last was sent northwest at the opening of the Wong Ni Chong Gap. But their chances were never really that great, certainly with no artillery support. The Canadians on Butler and Jardine's were pushed aside by the oncoming Japanese. The lieutenants leading each platoon died in the process. The survivors, now leaderless, went north to fight from the Hong Kong Volunteer Defense Corps' pillboxes, and from there they kept the fighting going until the afternoon of December 19th. But then their defenses came to an end as well. With two of the three platoons no longer in place, elements of the Japanese 230th Regiment took the heights and began mopping up exercises. In the area. Though some pillboxes at the base of these heights held out, manned by the Hong Kong Volunteer Defense Corps, their defiance lasted at most 24 hours. That is, except for Company No. 1, led by a Captain Penn. This defense lasted for four days, but during that time, 80% of his men were lost. The Japanese would use their numbers to bring Penn and his men down, but 
they suffered tremendous casualties in the process. Word of the worsening situation reached Lawson, and the only remedy was a counterattack, for simply holding back superior numbers, better equipped and supported, was not feasible. Selecting a company of the Winnipeg Grenadiers, led by Major A.B. Gresham, their assignment was to push the enemy off Jardine's lookout, and then to hold Mount Butler. Yet, for various reasons, A Company did not reach the bottom of Mount Butler until dawn the next day. Still, with a bayonet charge led by Warrant Officer Robert John Osborne, Butler was cleared. Not that this success would last. Before the day was over, the Japanese would bring up three additional companies and retake the height. Though again, they paid a heavy price for this. Only after all ammunition was gone did Major Gresham surrender, wanting to save his men. And though he was holding a white flag, Gresham was shot. Probably out of outrage or shock, one of Gresham's men fired their gun in response, killing an enemy officer. Now it was the Japanese turn to be outraged, and thus they threw several grenades at the Canadians. Osborne bravely grabbed these as they landed and threw them back at the enemy. Except the last one. It landed in an exposed position, thus Osborne could not simply reach it to toss it back. Instead, he dove on it to save his comrades. For this, Osborne was awarded the Victoria Cross, the first Canadian to do so, of World War II. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Going back to the morning of the 19th, Maltby was realizing the dire situation of Lawson's headquarters within the Gap. As such, he sent a company of the 2nd Royal Scots to assist. But they were engaged along the way, and only 15 men, none officers, reached Lawson. Also, a unit of sailors under a commander was sent from the south, but they too were ambushed, and very few of them managed to reach even the southern edge of the gap. Even by then, the Japanese had been swinging around, 
above and below the gap. Other Commonwealth units below the gap, as were battery positions, were taken. Getting reports that units from the 230th Japanese Regiment were in the valley, Maltby ordered the remaining Hong Kong volunteer batteries to bombard the area. The Japanese suffered massive casualties from these shells. Not that it helped Lawson at his headquarters. By 10 a.m., he was reporting to Maltby that his position was surrounded. His intention now was to go outside and shoot it out. Lawson and his entire staff, now holding various weapons, dashed outside and ran for the back of their headquarters. Their objective was to head up the nearest hill and fight from an advantageous position. That position was never reached. Lawson and those around him were taken down by machine gun fire. It's believed that Lawson was hit in the thigh and that his men carried him on from that point. So when the 2nd Battalion of the 14th Punjab Regiment showed up in three Bren carriers, Lawson was already dead, having bled out. By 1.30 of the afternoon of the 19th, Maltby was getting desperate. There was only so much left in his cupboard. Issuing Operation Order Number 6, he wanted the largest attempted counterattack so far to start at 3 p.m., Two companies of Punjabis would attack along the north coast to help stiffen resistance there, yet the commanding Punjab officer never received the orders. Another attack was to be launched at Jardine's Gap, but half the force promised never showed up, nor did the supporting eight field guns. Still, the grenadiers went on without the Royal Scots, who did show up later, but then their orders were changed to attack up the Wong Ni Chong Gap Road, so the Canadians would be unsupported in their attack up the height, and the scouts were covering territory that was strongly held, and had in fact mauled the A Company of the Royal Scots just a few hours before. Reconnaissance was not being done, not being shared, nor updated, and men would pay for this with their lives. The Royal Scots started up the Gap Road, and sure enough, when they reached the same place that A Company had been ambushed, the Scots were treated to the same reception. Ironically, the mortars and machine gun bullets were coming from the heights along Jardine's lookout, which the unsupported Canadians were supposed to take, but they could not, not without more men and artillery support. Every effort met with disaster, and only added to the killed and wounded of Maltby's command. The British General knew that the entire defense of Hong Kong was reaching its breaking point. As such, he needed something daring. Thus, he ordered Major Hodkinson of the Winnipeg Grenadiers to push east to Mount Parker, east of Mount Butler. If his troops could reach that far east, it may force the invaders to pause, knowing that they had enemy troops in their rear. Hodkinson asked for reinforcements and that the friendly guns on Mount Nicholson cover him as he and his men moved east. All this was agreed to, which did not change the situation on the ground. This latest counterattack force was come upon 
and attacked again and again. When its survivors reached Mount Nicholson, not that far from where they started, only five men were left, unwounded. Amazingly, these men pressed on, and as they reached an open area, they literally stumbled upon 500 enemy troops having lunch, with no sentries posted. Nothing for it. The small group opened fire, causing massive casualties. The Japanese retreated, but Hodkinson, his four unharmed men, and his twenty wounded knew they would be back. It was best to press on. As it was now not realistic to think about driving on to Mount Parker further east, Hodkinson's orders were changed after he reached the deceased Lawson's former headquarters. He was to attack a nearby police station, now being used by the Japanese. Soon, two Hong Kong Defense Volunteer Corps armored cars arrived with Vickers medium machine guns. However, as they were hit by Japanese artillery from some of the nearby heights, they were barely operational when they arrived. Still, Hodkinson got on with the attack and was quickly wounded even before reaching the front door. As the sun rose on December 20th, Maltby had to acknowledge that the enemy had won the battle of Wong Ni Chong Gap, the center of the island. Moreover, the Japanese already controlled the eastern half and Victoria Harbor, in between the new territories and Hong Kong itself. And yet, there were holdouts. Some of the pillboxes just north of the Gap were still in British hands, and two platoons still held some sections of the eastern side of the Gap, with one platoon behind them for support. And yet, the Japanese realized this too, so sent men to attack, surround, and cut off Maltby's most forward positions. But even this fighting was not easy for the invaders. Though platoon commanders were killed, and then the next of command would take over, only to be killed themselves, the next person in line, normally a lieutenant, would take over and keep the men fighting. And though by the evening of December 20th, Maltby could not factor in these forward positions, as they were all but in Japanese hands, the men there lasted for two days, only surrendering after their ammunition, water, and food ran out. But one company had killed more than 200 enemy troops, while the battle for the Gap cost the Japanese, in total, some 800 casualties. Yet, despite these losses, the Japanese were in a good position to begin taking the rest of the island. Two battalions were on the eastern half of Hong Kong, ready to drive south to take the Stanley area in the southeast. Two other battalions were ready to move southwest and to take the land around Repulse Bay, itself due south of the Gap. Another battalion was ready to move more to the west-southwest and take Deep Water Bay. Two other battalions were ready to march across the Wong Ni Chong Gap itself to push on west. And lastly, another battalion had just landed on the northern shore to act as a reserve to this already overwhelming force. Still, 
as the invaders had lost 800 men so far, and the island was only half won, it was determined that the 20th would be spent by them, consolidating their current positions. A British holdout at the Post Bridge House in the Gap was attacked, and a reconnaissance unit was sent south of Violet Hill, itself located southeast of the Gap. They were to scout the area around the Repulse Bay Hotel, with some sections being held by British forces, while other parts were held by Japanese. Throughout the hotel lay many wounded Commonwealth troops and sailors. Whereas Maltby and his could not rest, for time would not make their positions stronger on its own. No, what was needed was reinforcements sent to the few positions they had near this new front line. As such, Maltby sent a Canadian Royal Rifles Company and two Hong Kong Volunteer Platoons to the Repulse Bay Hotel. After securing that, they were to start heading north and attack the Gap from the south, hopefully surprising the Japanese. The first part of their objective, the retaking of the hotel and freeing their wounded comrades, was accomplished. But they had done this without artillery and had a hard time of it. Hard enough, that is, that it was not possible for them to push any distance from the hotel and towards the Gap. This failure to move north concerned Maltby, who sent reinforcements in a manner of speaking. What was left of A Company of the 2nd 14 Punjabis, only 25 men, tried to make their way, but got stuck in while fighting Japanese forces just above Deepwater Bay. There was also a small force of sailors holed up in two houses in the area, but by the end of the day, the survivors of all of these groups retreated. This allowed the Japanese to take Brick Hill on the peninsula on the western side of Deepwater Bay. With this, the south was coming more under Japanese control, and Maltby's headquarters was being enclosed on at least two sides. And yet, the British-led troops still had pockets of resistance that gave the Japanese pause. Like the recently taking area of Brick Hill, it still had a group of Hong Kong volunteers. And naval personnel, Canadians, and Middlesex troops held an area called Little Hong Kong's Ammunition Store, located just above Deepwater Bay and was on the left or west side of the Wong Nichong Gap. And supporting these two groups was the river gunboat HMS Sakala, positioned in Deepwater Bay, which lobbed shells when called upon. But its contributions would end the next day, the 21st, as it was bombed and strafed from the air, and it was then scuttled to keep it out of enemy hands. No matter, Maltby focused on the morrow. John Lawson was replaced as the commander of the West Brigade, and plans were made to, again, attack and reoccupy the Wong Nichong Gap. The question was, would the Japanese be willing to lose another 800 men to hold it?